end of all things is near. This is verse 7. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If, everyone, if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So these next three weeks, we're going to look at four of these concepts. Think rightly so that you can be clear-minded and be clear-minded so that you can pray. Persist in a love that has the ability to cover sin. Be graciously hospitable to others without complaining. Serve one another with gifts of grace that you've received. Okay? Just slow down and let those seep into not just our thoughts, but our emotions and then our actions. So this is the verse for today, 1 Peter 4, 7. It says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober, of sober mind, so that you can pray. When, when, how, many, how many of you like to read? How many of you like to read stuff that you don't have to read? Okay, good. That's a good, good habit. How many of you read novels? Awesome. Awesome. It's my goal to read uh, a, a novel here and there. Um, how many of you read the last chapter first? You do. That's awesome. Thank you for your boldness as everyone stares at you. Right? <laughs> so can I ask you a really quick question? Okay. What's your name? Alyssa. Alyssa, um, what's your motivation in reading the last chapter first? Yes. She hates surprises. Absolutely. How would it affect how you read the rest of the book if you read the, first, the last chapter first, right? Then you, you know how this, where this is going. You know the arc. You know if, if there's some tension. You know, okay, breathe. I know what's going to happen later, right? It's, it's why I hate watching movie trailers, because you've, you're, you're watching Mission Impossible, and there is Ethan Hunt, and he's, how is he going to get out of this one? But I already saw the trailer, so I know that Tom Cruise never dies in a movie, so it's okay, right? When you know how it ends, it frees you up to think differently and to, if you extrapolate that to your life, it frees you up to live differently frees you up to take a step in faith if you know that your faith is anchored to something real. Here's, a, here's another okay, sports analogy. Uh, how many of you watched the Purdue game yesterday? Good, good. Uh, they did well. They did well. David Blau especially is just on fire. There's one play, and you see this about every week, where the defense jumps off sides, right? But the referee doesn't call it dead. And so... Uh, David Blau sees that happening right there. The, the defensive end jumped off sides. And so he knows he has a free play, which means that whatever happens, it's going to be okay, 
And so what usually happens and what David Blau did yesterday is he steps back and throws a bomb into the end zone, and it was intercepted. But it didn't matter because it was a free play, right? He took that risk because he knew that if the guy caught it, touchdown. But if not, he's covered. So there's this, this hope that we have that is based in the fact that we know where this is going. We've read, like Alyssa, the last chapter of the book. Around 63 AD, Peter wrote a letter to the churches who were scattered in various cities and communities in what is now Turkey. And he called them chosen exiles. And exiles, not because necessarily they were forced away from their home, but that their true citizenship was not where they lived. They were primarily citizens of God's kingdom. So this whole letter is written to exiles, to sojourners, to from awayers. Peter proclaims that they were chosen exiles. They're chosen because God is the one who took the initiative and the pursuit of them. Some, one writer said, God's divine initiative has operated in their lives even before they were aware of it. God's divine initiative has operated in your life even before you were aware of it, drawing us into intimate, loving relationship with him, but also one in which God claims the authority. Chosen meant that they belong, that you belong, that you have purpose. Rick read this earlier, but this is the, the passage that frames this whole semester for us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a what? Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the, what? Last time. Last time. In chapter 1, verse 20, Peter states that Jesus has been revealed during these last times. It's not saying that necessarily the world will end soon, but that we've been called into what in chapter 5, verse 10, he calls the age of God's glory. And people have read this, and Jesus talked about, you know, the time won't be long. And people have read that with cynicism. You know, it's been 2,000 years. So, Peter, you said it was the last time. It's been 2,000 years, so what's, you know going on with that. Here we are. You must have been wrong. That hope was just wishful thinking. The end of all things is near. It sounds like something one of the, the preachers on the Memorial Mall would say, right? <laughs> Got your sign. We tend to get this picture in mind. It's the end of the world as we know it. And, and certainly, you know, you know, we get left behind, right? That Nicholas Cage. That's the picture that we get. I specifically, can you throw that next one up? He's looking right at you. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, 
It's just hard to take anything serious with Nicolas Cage. Certainly, there is a lot of news, and, and, and there are like apocalyptic things going on, for sure. There are disasters and threats and rumors, and they feed this, this kind of continual apocalyptic anxiety. Politics, economics, job market, family structures, threats, it all feels very volatile. And whether it's government or entertainment or Wall Street, the goal seems to be to keep us on shaky ground, you know? To create and sustain this chaotic dissonance, a, a shaky foundation, a collective stress. Do you feel it? But what Peter means with this kind of verbiage, the end is near, is that the restoration of all things, the living hope that we can bank on is a reality. It's a present reality that whatever we're going through, whether hardship or suffering or conflict or rejection, specifically because of your commitment to follow Jesus, that everything, your identity, your purpose, your future is seen through the resurrection which brings comfort and encouragement in this fuller perspective on the present, and it points toward the time of Jesus' return when God will make all things right through his justice and judgment. The nearness isn't given, giving a time frame for the completion of time as much as it is pointing to the fact that we are in the restoration chapter. Because the resurrection has happened. We are living in nearness to the end in light of the resurrection. Our hope, our identity, our security, your worth is all attached to the reality of the resurrected Christ. Just to kind of get that into our hearts and minds. Can you just say that after me? Just say, my hope, my identity... My security, my worth is attached to the reality of the resurrection. Yeah. If you get nothing else out of today, get that. Jesus uses similar language in Mark chapter 1. In Matthew 4, he says the kingdom of God is near. It's close. It has broken in. Peter is saying that since we are living in the last part of God's epic plan of rescue, redemption, and restoration, that that reality brings a different perspective and a different priority for the people of God. He's saying that our actions and our behaviors should reflect that reality. We know how the story ends. And that completely thinks how we think and hope and live out the story, how we reflect the power and the presence of Jesus, specifically in a world that rejects him. Colossians 1, 1 through 4, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you die to this life, 
And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. C.S. Lewis wrote this. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people think, a form of escapism. It's not wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Or in the words of Ralph McCoy, the end is far enough to provoke diligence, close enough to invoke delight. He's my son-in-law. He speaks wisdom. So Peter is talking about the, the now and the not yet, that we are living as resident aliens, sojourners, exiles. We are a living, we have a living hope. We have a, get this, a sustained joy. We have a humble confidence. We have a focused intentionality. We have a measured urgency. I like those pairings a lot, so I'm going to tell them to you again. We have a living hope. We have a sustained joy. We have a humble confidence. We have a focused intentionality, and we have a measured urgency. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Alert and sober is such a contrast to the first part of chapter 4. And if you missed that one, hit that podcast two, two weeks ago. Rick preached through this passage, and it says in verse 3, You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. And he describes minds dulled by excessive drinking and sex, confused by depravity and idolatry. So in contrast, instead of the static of confusion and the, and the chaos and the num, numbing din of endless projects and pursuit, do you know what I'm talking about? talking about? Peter implores Jesus' followers to be alert and sober, to think rightly and be clear-minded. And again, he, he keeps coming back to these themes. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert... And fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. To be fully aware, in control of what you're thinking, to align with what is true, to live in the reality of the resurrection, and to set our hope on the fullness of grace that will be realized when Jesus returns. Do you want to live? Do you really want to live? then live in the hope of the resurrection and the restoration. Be alert and of sober mind. We have so much static and distractions and noise drowning out the words of God. In Luke 10, Jesus is visiting with the sisters, Mary and Martha, in their home. And Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And then what did you do? 
hanging on every word, just wanting to be close, just wanting to be in proximity, to be in intimacy with Jesus. And Martha's in the kitchen because she's always in the kitchen, and there's nothing wrong with being in the kitchen, but she's getting really frustrated because Mary's not helping her, right? There's stuff to do. And she calls her sister out. Jesus, tell her to get her butt in here. And that's what it says in the Greek, probably. And so <laughs> Jesus said this. He said, you are Martha, 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 Martha. You are distracted by many things. But only one thing is needed. And your sister is doing it. You're distracted by many things. Be alert and sober that cuts through the distractions and the noise which cuts out the very words of God. It means cutting through the confusion of our situations. We can get super overwhelmed by our circumstances, by the what ifs, by the fear of the unknown. We can get overwhelmed by the fact that um, we are just seemingly spinning our wheels and, and spinning plates and nothing gets resolved. We can get overwhelmed by our situation in a way that completely blocks our epic last chapter view. We can get so stuck in the now that we lose sight of what has been and what will be. We can get so stuck in our own sin, in our own chaos. 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus, but yet walk in darkness, we lie. We, we don't practice the truth. And so part of being alert and of, of sober mind means that there isn't a, a, um, I just lost the word. There is a, there is a congruency between our life with Jesus and our life, right? That sometimes uh, I'll have a conversation, and it's like, I just can't. I can't pray. I can't hear anything from God. And I, I'm, I'm just, I feel like my prayers just hit the ceiling. And sometimes as we talk, what is actually going on in this friend's life is that they're stuck in sin. That that blocks the communication. And the beauty of God's grace is that we repent of that. We can we confess that to him and open up those lines. Sometimes it's just our, our busyness and our priorities and the, the immediacy of needs and expectations. There are all kinds of, of things that, that, that block us off to actually praying. From two weeks ago, this is part of that passage, 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. 
Equip yourselves with the same attitude of Jesus, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the, the will of God. We are free because of the cross to live for the will of God, to be aligned with the will of God. Rick said this two weeks ago. He said, there are two ways to live. One will break you, and the other will give you life. That society is rooted in expectations that are built in self-gratification and self-glory, and that leads to self-destruction. But the way of God, the way of Jesus and his kingdom is the way of love and the way of holy imagination and the way of dreaming up ways to serve. It's a way of trust. So true life comes through the the saving grace of Jesus as we live for the glory of God, as we live for his will, as we live for his purposes that he has designed and that he says are good. Ephesians 5, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, not as cloudy, but as clear, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Paul Little, in the book, The Praying Life, says the greatest struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It's trying to discern and then disown my own. He said often when we say prayer doesn't work, it means, God, you didn't do my will in my way, in my time. So it's submission to the will into the way of God. Living for God's will, that means that we are free to pursue what God wants. And the primary way that that gets lived out is through prayer. The purpose of being alert and clear-minded so that we can pray. Everything else that we do as a, as a believer, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, flows from this life of prayer, of, of being in the revealed word of God in Scripture, but also listening to his voice, to his spirit in the day-to-day. It's prayer that is awake to what God is up to. It's confident. It's confidence that comes with an empty grave and a full promise of restoration. Do you hear that? Prayer is being awake to what God is up to and has a confidence that comes with an empty grave and the promise of restoration. And that's coming from Peter. He's the guy that couldn't stay awake. Bless you. He's the guy that in the garden, before the trial, before the arrest, before the, the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus said, stay awake with me. I'm, I'm going to go pray. Just stay awake with me. And he and James and John, they couldn't. They fell asleep. He fell asleep. That was the guy that had no confidence in the courtyard when the little servant girl comes up and says, I recognize you. You were with Jesus. And he was like, no, three times. So the rooster crowing just in the back of his mind and his, his sleep-filled eyes, that's the guy that said, stay awake, be alert. Be sober-minded so that you can pray. This is the motivation. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
This is the kind of prayer that is aligned with the purposes of God, that trusts in his goodness, that lives for his glory. This is a prayer that's anchored to hope and peace and love of God, even in the midst of, of rejection and animosity and suffering for his name. When our mind is clear, we can be more in tune with the will of God. We can pray more specifically. We can pray more effectively. We can pray more attentively. And we can pray more continuously. Uh, I want to just talk in practical terms for a moment. Three, three aspects of this prayer. Um, first of all, just to establish rhythms of prayer. There was a guy named uh, Benedict that lived back around 500 A.D., and he went, to, he went to university, and at the university, he was just so frustrated because, it's like all of his friends, all they wanted to do, to do was just kind of party and live for themselves, even back in 500 AD, right? And so he, he said, I'm going I'm to do the reverse of that. I'm going to do the opposite of that, the antithesis of that. I'm going to be redundant in my speech. And, and so he went to uh, live as a hermit up in a cave. And then God just said, mm, this isn't... This isn't it either. <laughs> and so he started to form these communities. And people were coming to Christ from all of these really pagan backgrounds. And so they, they found this community together. And there were, there were these rhythms of worship and of prayer and of work and of rest and of fun and play. So if you were to be a part of that community, you, you found yourself participating in those rhythms. And that's not new to Benedict. That was the whole idea that God gave in the Garden of Eden. This is the whole idea of, of human flourishing, that we were called to be in, in this, this rhythm with God that affects every single part of our lives. And so... What is the rhythm in your life? I mean, you've, you've, got, you've got the big rocks of your, of your classwork, or if you, are, if you have a job, you have the big rock of your, of your vocation, right? Where does God fit in to the rhythm of your day? In fact, let me flip that around. Where does the rhythm of your day fit in? to the will and the purposes and the presence and the power of God. Can we, can we plan? Can we schedule? Can we prioritize around him? A couple of really practical things coming into this year. Um, it was just really clear that God has, has been moving in a powerful way on this campus and largely through the movement of worship and prayer. So our worship nights, you know, we started with just a handful, and those have kind of exploded. And another one's coming up this Friday night. Um, prayer has been just on the, on the front lines of uh, transformation in many of your lives. You are being prayed for on a daily basis. Do you know that? So we wanted to find some ways to invite you into these times of prayer. And so there's a really awesome wood-burned prayer board that Joe did down in the lobby. 
And that gives some specific times where we are trying to gather as a community and staff and, and you all throughout the week. And some of those are, are liturgical, which means that we, we get to pray scripture. And some of those are, are contemplative, where we, we sit with the Lord. And some of those are conversational. And on Sunday nights, we have this prayer service. We, we changed our third service to a prayer service so that we can just come together in this space to start your week, to launch your week of being with God, with each other, of interceding, of, of, of worshiping, of having grateful hearts. <laughs> Get into the rhythm of prayer. Start your day with prayer. End your day with prayer. Find some times throughout your day that are set aside. Put an alarm on your phone at 10 a.m. or whatever to pray. And can you pray specifically about certain things on certain days even? Maybe one day you pray for your family, one day you pray for this campus, one day you pray for this church, one day you pray for our nation, one day you pray for our world, one day you pray for those friends that don't yet know Jesus. Pray specifically, pray incrementally, pray continuously. So to have these rhythms of prayer and with a nod to St. Benedict and his sister, Scholastica. That's a cool name. Uh, secondly, reflexive prayer. Reflexive prayer. Uh, Brother Lawrence was another, um, another saint, right? He actually um, worked in a monastery in the dish room and delivered beer. Cool job. But he's practicing the presence of God. And the other brothers in the monastery wanted to work in the dish room just because Brother Lawrence just talked to God all day long, and it was a bit contagious. <laughs> he had this joy about him, you know, where prayer wasn't simply set aside in rhythms, but it was continuous. It was continuous conversation. And it wasn't just this pious, you know, let me walk around campus with my eyes closed because I'm so spiritual because I'm just talking to God all the time. It was like inclusive. It was Dave Shockey in the lobby. I was coming up and he was, he was praying with somebody. That, knowing Dave, that probably started with, how are you doing? Let me pray for you. That's not just because Dave is the pastor. That's what we're all invited to, right? You are in a unique spot to be on the front lines, to be the first responder when the crap hits the fan for your roommate or your family or that person in class. To be, hey, can, can, I, can I just pray for you? It's amazing. Talk about evangelism. It's amazing how many times the doorway for someone to get to Jesus starts with someone saying, can I pray for you? I don't know you at all. Can I just, can I just pray for you? 
Only one time in my whole life has someone said no. You are first responder in that moment. You are also the first responder to pray in just prayers of thanksgiving. Someone comes in and says, you won't believe what awesome things happen today. It's like, oh, that's so cool. Let's pray about that. Thank you, God, for that, you know. To be reflexive instead of so compartmentalized. We are infused with hope, not functional deist, living with God at a distance. We get to encounter God on a daily basis. And the third one is just the door opener prayer. Colossians 4 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, Paul says, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I am imprisoned. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. We are in the last times, Peter says. The end is near. And so we have this, both this kingdom confidence that is rooted in the resurrection, and we have this kingdom urgency, knowing that Jesus alone is the answer, is the rescue to what this world desperately needs. So can we live and pray in confidence and in measured urgency? Practicing his presence, but also his power. We're going to have a time of communion. So we invite those that are serving us communion to get that ready, if you would. I'd like to read this, this piece. Uh, we have this, this teaching planning meeting, and uh, Rick brought this. This is from Tim Chester. Specifically talking about communion with God, being based in union with God. And I'm just going to read what he says. Grasping this distinction between union and communion protects us from thinking our actions make all the difference on the one hand and thinking our actions make no difference on the other hand. Our actions don't make us Christians or make us more of a Christian or keep us as Christians because our union with God is all his work. Our actions do make a difference, listen to this, to our enjoyment of God. For our communion with God, our enjoyment of our union with God involves a two-way relationship. That, this is why even if you're a Christian, your relationship with God can feel weak when you neglect that relationship. And yet at the same time, this is why you can always affirm that your union with God is based on the rock-solid ground of Christ's finished work. However much you mess up or neglect your communion with God, you can always start again because you are always united to God in Christ. We're going to focus 
on our communion with God, on how we can enjoy a living relationship with God, but we must never forget that the foundation of our communion with God, our intimacy with God, is our union with God in Christ. The wonder of God's grace is that our relationship with him is not something we have to achieve. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so we, we take communion to commune with God, but our communion with God points to our union with God through Christ on the cross. And the hope, the living hope of both an empty tomb and a coming promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your good grace. And thank you for this hope that we have, this future that we have. Thank you that you've allowed us to, to peek at the last chapter. So we can live with victory. We can live with confidence. We can also live sharing your heart for this world. In this now and not yet that we find ourselves in this nearness to the resurrection that points toward the consummation of all things. God, change our priorities and our perspective to reflect that reality. Keep our eyes open and awake. We pray in Jesus for his glory. Thank you.